You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers podcast. Today is part four in our series on Norwegian explorer Fridjof Nansen. Last time, we left Nansen as his ship, Fram, departed from the northern settlement of Vardo, Norway, bound for the Siberian coast. They were now truly in the wilderness. But before we set off with Nansen, there is one note for today. Go to our website, explorerspodcast.com, for a map of Fram's journey. It will very much help you understand the specifics of Nansen's expedition. That is it for notes. Let's get going. It was late July of 1893. Fromm traveled east along the Russian coast, aiming for the remote outpost of Karbarova, where the team would pick up dogs for the expedition. From there, they would continue east and bring on a second batch of dogs at the mouth of the only Yolk River. After that, they would head north, to the approximate location where the Jeanette had been crushed in the ice over a decade before. At that point, the Fromm would be iced in and taken by the transpolar drift to the North Pole. Nansen didn't expect to be carried right to his goal, but close enough that he could lead a team, on skis and using dogs, to the pole. The journey would take at least two years, probably more. The ship, the Fram, had been specially built for the expedition. It had a crew of 12. Otto Svedrup was the expedition's second-in-command. The Fram departed Vardu on July 21st in the early morning hours. Many of the men had gotten drunk the night before, and Nansen lit into them for their actions. So, it was the summer of 1893, and Fromm would push east. The expedition would cross the Barrett Sea, reaching Novaya Zemlya, a big island off the Russian mainland. They would arrive at the settlement of Karbarova on July 29th. It had been a, roughly, 700-mile, or 1130-kilometer, voyage from Vardo. Waiting for the Norwegians were the dogs. The sled dogs had been procured by a Latvian agent, Alexander Trondheim, he had bought 40 dogs from Siberian tribesmen, although Nansen had asked for only 30. The reason was that sled dogs led hard lives. Disease and illness, as well as fighting with other animals and each other, was commonplace. Trondheim would lead the dogs across the Ural Mountains, following the reindeer herds of the area's nomadic tribes. It was a winding journey that had taken six months. 34 of the 40 dogs would survive the journey. For the dogs, the expedition hadn't even started yet, and six were already dead. They had reached Karbarova on July 10th and had been waiting for Nansen. Karbarova was a desolate and bleak place, two churches dominating the small settlement. It was inhabited only in the summer by tribesmen and Russian traders. A few things to note. 1. Ice was already appearing in the area, an ominous sign. 
2. The expedition was expecting a load of coal to be delivered to Karbarova, but it had not yet arrived. 3. The Fram was experiencing mechanical issues, as the steam pipes of the engine leaked, causing the boiler to fail. Also, the bilge pump broke. Repairs were being made at this time. 4. Despite the problems, the Fram had performed well. It was nimble and quick, and it was strong, able to push aside ice flows as needed. 5. To the east was the Yugor Strait, which led into the Kara Sea. Few ships had ever gone to this region. Nansen would take a motorboat to the entrance of the Kara Sea and find heavy ice. However, the coastal area was clear. The Fram needed to get through the Kara Sea, which was about 1,000 miles wide, or 1,600 kilometers. From the Kara Sea, you can sail into the Laptev Sea, which leads to the New Siberian Islands. North of those islands was where the Jeanette had gone down, and this was Nansen's destination. The big fear was that the ice would form early in the Kara Sea and block the way east. As a note, only one ship had ever managed to sail into the Laptev Sea from the Kara Sea, so this was no simple thing. And so, Nansen and his crew prepared to head into realms rarely ventured. Alexander Trotheim, the man who had procured the dogs, was impressed by Fram, the crew, and Nansen. Of our Norwegian explorer, he noted his commanding presence, plus his willingness to work hard and set a good example. He said that when coal was being hauled to the boiler room, a hard and dirty job, Nansen took part. However, despite Trotheim's praise, there was, without question, a barrier between Nansen and the rest of the crew. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. So, the Fram, engines repaired, would wait until August 3rd before departing Karbarova. The dogs would be kenneled on the deck of the ship, except for one, Kvike, which had been brought from Norway. She roamed the ship freely and was Nansen's favorite. The other dogs had to be kept apart, as they would fight viciously with one another if given the chance. As for the cold Nansen had been waiting for, well, it never arrived, and while it was a setback, it wasn't critical to the mission. Before sailing, Nansen had been able to write some final letters, including one to his wife. He included some flowers he had picked from the Siberian plain. He wrote to Ava that he hoped to be home in two years, but to his brother Alexander, he said it would likely be at least three years, perhaps as long as five. Fromm would sail east, disappearing into the fog, the vessel's last contact with civilization. The ship would pass through the Yugor Strait and into the Kara Sea. The ice, fog, and unknown waters put everyone on edge. Fromm would sail wherever the water and ice allowed them. Through channels of open ice or along the coast, the ship went steadily east, although not necessarily in a straight line. And I want to note that the ship often had to turn around when the ice closed in, forcing them to retrace their steps. Through it all, Fromm proved to be everything she was made out to be. She was quick and maneuverable, as well as powerful. However, on August 6th, the ship would be stopped by the fog and ice. Fromm would not move for three days. But things would clear up on August 9th, and Fromm would press onward, reaching open water a few days later. In fact, things went so well, the ship would be able to sail east at a speed of five knots, and just using the sails. On August 16th, Fromm rounded the Yamal Peninsula, a couple of days later, they sighted an island, the first discovery of the expedition. The island was dubbed Svedrup Island, as it was the expedition's second-in-command who had sighted it. And there would be more discoveries as the Fram zigzagged its way east through the ice. One place was named after Clements Markham, the president of the Royal Geographical Society. Another was named after Adolf Nordeskjöld, the Scandinavian explorer who had been the first to complete the Northeast Passage. Fromm would continue to press east, but with each day, the ice thickened and snow began to fall. In the beginning of September, the ship would get stuck in the ice for four days. Frankly, the journey across the Kara Sea, which was shallow and known to get choked with ice, 
was touch and go on more than one occasion. Many of the men thought they wouldn't escape the clutches of the sea and get frozen in until spring. And then on September 9th, the men would sight a wide stretch of water. Nansen ordered the ship to ram its way through the ice, and in short order, the Fram was in open sea. The next day, she rounded Cape Chelyuskin, the entrance to the Laptev Sea. Fram was only the second ship, after Nordenskjöld's Vega in 1878, to enter the Laptev Sea in such a fashion. It was a great moment for Nansen and the entire crew. They had passed a major obstacle. Nansen would call the men together and fire off the ship's cannon to mark the moment. He would then declare a celebration, even breaking out the alcohol, something he didn't often do. The ship would then head to the mouth of the only Yoke River to collect the second batch of dogs. From there, it was further east and north to the New Siberian Islands. Fromm continued to skirt along the coast of Siberia, but when they came to the region around the only Yoke River, the ice was thick, adding unpredictable currents and unknown shoals, and it was too risky to try and press onward. Nansen ordered the ship off. He would have loved to have had the second pack of dogs, but the uncharted waters, in conjecture with the ice, were just too dangerous. The Fram thus headed northeast toward the New Siberian Islands. The Laptev Sea was much deeper than the Kara Sea, so there was a lot less ice pack to contend with. This allowed them to make good progress. Nansen now wanted to get north of the New Siberian Islands. This equated, roughly, with 80 degree north latitude. He needed the ice to hold off just a little longer to reach his goal. But luck would not be Nansen's friend. The ice would thicken, especially to the north and east. Then, on September 20th, Nansen would write, quote, Ahead lay the edge of the ice, massive and tight-packed, gleaming in the fog. End quote. The Fram could go no further. The northeast, which was where Nansen had wanted to reach, was blocked by solid ice. Faced with an impassable option to the east, Nansen decided to push northwest, where the ice wasn't yet completely packed tight. This would take the Fram further away from the current that Nansen had expected, but he decided that getting further north was the most important thing at this point. In reality, it would not matter too much, and that's because within a day, the ice closed in around Fram. To the men, it seemed inevitable that this would be where the ship would get iced in for the future. On September 28th, the dogs were transferred to the ice, and then about a week later, the rudder of the ship was raised to prevent it from being damaged by the encroaching ice. Seeger Scott Hansen, the expedition science officer, would say this of the moment, quote, Now we are well and truly moored for the winter, end quote. The position was 78 degrees, 49 minutes north. Nansen had wanted to reach the 80th parallel, and he was a little west of his desired location, but it would have to do. Now the men in the ship were at the mercy of the ice pack. On October 9th, the ice would press in and put Fromm under real pressure for the first time. Of it, Nansen would say, quote, a great commotion began and the whole ship trembled. End quote. The noise and the shaking was unnerving, many of the men experiencing such a thing for the first time. But Fromm performed beautifully, exactly as expected. The ice slid cleanly beneath the rounded hull, lifting her up a few feet. As the pressure eased, the ship would settle down and break through the ice. Nansen was thrilled by the success of Colin Archer's design and construction, but it was just the beginning. Groans and creaks and rumbles would continue for days but each time the Fram would be pushed up and then settled down. The ice just couldn't grip the hull. On October 25th, the expedition would see the last of the sun. The Arctic night was upon them. The ship had a windmill, which powered a generator, which powered a set of electric lamps. The lights were strung throughout the ship, and while they were weak, especially compared to today's lights, they were a much-appreciated amenity. As we have seen on any expedition that spends a winter in the polar regions, the darkness can be oppressive, even debilitating. 
The small lamps that ran through the ship kept the gloominess at bay, even if just for a bit. Fromwood moved with the ice pack, but not necessarily in one direction. As we have talked about, ice packs are unpredictable. They are subject to the tides and currents, which were unknown to Nansen and his team. And thus the Fromm would drift in all sorts of directions, north, south, east, west, and everything in between. If you look at the map of Fromm's route, it is nothing at all like a straight line. By November 19th, the Fromm would actually be further south than when she had been frozen in. But now, the biggest issue facing the men of Fromm was boredom, plus the prospect of not seeing their homes for two or three or four years. To battle the gloom, the ship maintained a standard watch, and duties were assigned and completed in a regular fashion. Scientific readings were taken, laundry was done, repairs were made. The idea was to keep the men occupied and engaged. Also, each man on the ship had to undergo a medical exam every month under the eye of the ship's doctor, Henrik Blessing. Each man was tested for anemia and watched for signs of scurvy. The latter was a common problem on polar expeditions. At the time, no one knew that scurvy was caused by a lack of vitamin C, but it was known that certain foods helped battle the disease. This included oranges and limes. The latter, limes, had been a staple on English ships for a hundred years. And that, my friends, is why Brits are often called limeys by Americans. However, the Scandinavians had a scurvy-fighting solution that dated back to the days of the Vikings. This was the Arctic cloudberry. The cloudberry was only found in the northern regions of Scandinavia, and it was rich in vitamin C. Nansen had been told by the explorer Adolf Nordenskjöld that he had brought cloudberries on his Vega expedition. And so Nansen, for his own endeavor, had purchased a half ton of cloudberry preserves. Nansen had not thought the cloudberries to be the key to fighting scurvy. He actually believed that scurvy was a bacterial infection and went on the theory that a variety of foods was essential to keeping the disease at bay. As such, Nansen had brought more than 50 kinds of tinned foods. Many of these items, such as red cabbage, were high in vitamin C, if fresh. But when you can food, it destroys much of the nutritional value. Luckily for Nansen, he had brought the cloudberry preserves, and it would save the men from scurvy. The ship, by the way, was well outfitted with food. Oddly, Nansen had not brought along a dedicated cook. We have seen in other stories about polar exploration how important a smart and innovative chef can be to the crew of a ship. To not eat the same food, prepared in the same fashion, for months, even years, was critical to the morale of the men. The crew had enough problems already, and you didn't want them constantly grumbling about the food. It could provide a rallying point for the disgruntled. Luckily for Nansen, a few of the men would emerge as cooks and bakers, and the variety of foods he had brought helped avoid such discontent. Side note here. Years ago, I got to spend a night on a docked World War II-era submarine with my son. We did a tour of the sub, and the guide told us that, with regards to the health of a crew, the two most important people were the doctor and the cook. The doctor is understandable, but why the cook? Well, the cook touched everything and everyone. If the cook got sick, it was the easiest way for something to spread throughout the rest of the crew. And thus, the cook and the doctor were always the cleanest of anyone on a submarine. Side note done. And this takes us to another item that I mentioned earlier, and that's Nansen's relationship with the rest of the crew. As I said before, Nansen had little in common with most of the men of the Fram. These were sailors and outdoorsmen and military men. He was an academic and a scientist, and prickly and moody. Sir Good Scott Hansen, the chief science officer and navigator, wrote this about the boss. Quote, he is an odd character, sometimes serious, scientific, and aggressive in discussions, and then one fine day extravagantly cheerful and pleasant. End quote. He said that Nansen wanted to be the dominant alpha male, but in doing so, he just came across as an insufferable know-it-all. 
and even worse was Nansen's inability to listen to others. In the diaries of the crew, this is a common frustration. If it wasn't Nansen's idea, it wasn't right, and if someone had a suggestion, he just wouldn't listen. For the most part, the men just wished that Nansen would leave them to their work, but he was a meddler. Scott Hansen said Nansen, quote, had a sheer mania for interfering with everything, end quote. Nansen never really connected with the men, and this only isolated him even more. The closest person he had to a friend was Peter Hendrickson, a harpooner. The two would often take walks, Nansen able to speak freely with the man. Now, two things about all of this. One, it is not as if the men despised Nansen every waking moment. They respected him in many ways. He worked hard and shared in the burdens of life on the ice. He was funny and engaging when the mood struck him. And when he learned how to do something better, he did it. We have seen that in Nansen. But his moodiness just drove the men crazy. They were always on edge, wondering what version of Nansen was roaming the ship. And that brings us to a second point, and that is Otto Svedrup, the expedition's second-in-command. Svedrup was a quiet and stolid man. Although he displayed little emotion, people said he had a unique sense of humor that would emerge in quieter moments. Svedrup had Nansen's trust, and more importantly, he knew how to do things without threatening Nansen's status as the ship's top dog. And he had the natural ability to work with the rest of the crew. Unlike Nansen, he did not let his emotions erupt in the heat of the moment. He was an even, trusted, and calming presence, which was sorely needed on the ship to counter Nansen's mercurial nature. Roland Hunford, in his biography of Nansen, would say this about the two, quote, Nansen was a man with drive. Svedrup had the talent to command, end quote. I think the thing I admire so much about Svedrup was his ability to assess a situation and know when and how to make things work. He admired Nansen in many ways, but he didn't necessarily like him. Yet he understood what Nansen needed in order to succeed. That's an admirable quality. A few things I want to mention about life on the Fram. There were four single cabins, which were taken by Nansen, Scott Hansen, Svedrup, and Blessing. There were then two larger cabins, which housed four and five men, respectively. The ship, which was not that big, had one large room that served as the de facto mess hall and lounge. It featured many Nordic touches, such as dragon heads carved into the chairs. Now, the ship would provide things to occupy the men outside of their daily routine. There was a library with more than 600 books, and Nansen tried to get a newspaper going called the Fromm Review, but interest was middling. Only eight issues were published. Another distraction was an organ. When Nansen played, it invariably caused all the dogs to begin to howl along with him. I love that image. This tiny spot on the ice, the Fromm, in the dark of the Arctic, the sound of music and howling dogs drifting over the polar cap. And speaking of the dogs, they were another welcome distraction. As it always seems to happen, the men grew attached to the animals. On December 13, 1893, Nansen's favorite dog, Kavike, would give birth to a litter of puppies. Even the hardest of men can't help but not love puppies. By the way, most of the dogs that Nansen had bought had been neutered, but he had hoped to have some pups which would give him more dogs in the future. Also regarding the dogs, there would be some initial test runs done on the ice with them. The first major test ended up with Nansen humiliated as a team of dogs dragged him across the ice. And so the men would spend the first Christmas in the Arctic, trapped in the erratic, slow-moving ice. And the passing of a new year cast an aura of melancholy over the ship. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort.
Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job or your title. As former corporate executives, we know firsthand that navigating corporate waters is not easy. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. I wish people would be able to understand in this corporate world that talking about things that don't work or identifying problems does not mean you're a problem. We'll dive deep into what happens behind fancy corporate doors or Zoom backgrounds or whatever. Are they really performance improvement plans or just a legal tool to get rid of people? (laughs) I know a lot of people have been saved because of them. We've created a show to help you navigate tricky corporate situations based on research and real life experience. I have really good advice. Don't go to a strip club with your team. (laughs) Listen to the Ambie Award nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. In January of 1894, the crazy zigzagging of Fromm would abate and the ship would begin to move in a more northerly direction. The 80th parallel would be passed on March 22nd. The drift was slower than Nansen had anticipated. At this rate, Fromm would not get near the pole for five years. One reason for this was the depth of the Arctic Ocean. No one had understood how immensely deep the Arctic waters were. Nansen's drift theory was based on the region having shallower waters. All of this uncertainty gnawed at Nansen. He saw himself as a man of action, yet he was stuck, powerless to do anything about it. He would write, quote, I feel I must break through this deadness, this inertia, and find some outlet for my energies, end quote. None of this helped Nansen's darker moods. In his diary, he brooded over the slow progress of the expedition, and he pondered if he had wasted his life on such a maddening endeavor. But he would have to endure it all as the Fram slowly drifted northwest. In May of 1894, the ship was only moving about a mile a day. Nansen knew, sooner or later, he was going to have to make a go for the pull on skis and with the dogs. Before making any decisions, he decided to wait until summer to see exactly how far Fram would drift. And so, as summer came and went, Nansen began to prepare for the inevitable. In September, he set out testing the sledges and skis and dogs. He ordered everyone to practice two hours a day on skis. Now, I want to note that this wasn't all related to the North Pole attempt. This was for the very real possibility that Fram would never get out of the ice. Despite the innovative design of the vessel, she would not last forever in the pack. With that in mind, Nansen wanted the men to be prepared in case they had to abandon the Fram and make a go across the ice to reach land. So, regarding the dogs, Nansen was not a natural with them. He lacked the patience and empathy needed, yet while he struggled with them, he worked hard to get better at it. But everyone knew that Nansen wouldn't be going to the pole himself. He would take at least one or two others, along with the dogs. The obvious choice to be part of the sledge team was 26-year-old Yelmar Johansson. Johansson had signed on the expedition as a stoker, but it was really for his expertise with the dogs that he had been hired. In addition to knowing how to handle dogs, Johansson was an outstanding skier and athlete, as well as a world champion gymnast. He could be gloomy at times, but unlike Nansen, was modest and unassuming, and thus popular amongst the crew. Another thing, Johansson was a follower. He wanted to be led, and had no illusions of overshadowing his boss. That appealed to Nansen. On November 16, 1894, Nansen would unveil his plans to the rest of the team. Once the ship reached the 83-degree north mark, he and one other man would set off for a run at the pole. On their return, they would make their way for the islands of Franz Josef Land. 
From there, they would make a crossing to Spitsbergen, where they would find a sealing vessel, which often visited the region, to bring them home. Nansen would offer Johansen the opportunity to accompany him to the pole. Johansen immediately accepted. Of Johansen, Nansen said he was, quote, unquestionably best suited in all respects, end quote. The two men's relationship would end up being, well, let's just say awkward. Johansen quickly came to despise how Nansen treated him, and most everyone else, like a child. His condescending attitude grated on Johansen, and his journal was filled with daily complaints about his boss. However, Johansen was not the kind of person to challenge Nansen, especially at first, but in time there will be some clashes between the two. No matter, the push to the pole was now on the table, and it meant the entire crew was dedicated to the Enterprise in the winter of 1894-95. Training was done with the dogs and on skis, and the sledges were tested. It was determined that the men would not have to ride on a sledge. Instead, the dog teams would instinctively follow a lead skier and didn't need a driver. This meant the sledges could carry more supplies. The sledges themselves were refined to work better on the ice, and Nansen went through the many skis he had brought and settled on a design. Something that had to be constructed was a pair of kayaks. This was because on the return journey, there was a good chance the two explorers would need to take to the water to reach Spitsbergen. For this, two kayaks were built. They were called the North Pole Kayaks by the men. They were shorter and stubbier than a traditional kayak, so they could be carried on the sledges. Made of bamboo and covered in canvas, they weighed about 18 kilos, or 40 pounds. Now, as all the preparations for Nance's departure were made, some things happened that I want to talk about. When 1895 rolled around, the Fram had been at sea for about a year and a half, and the ship had performed well. However, in the first week of the new year, an incident occurred that nearly doomed the entire ship. The men would wake up one night as Fram was rocked by violent tremors. Everyone thought the ship was being crushed. And then the source of the tremors were revealed in the dark of the Arctic winter. A wall of ice, far bigger than the ship, was pressing toward the vessel. Nansen described it as a wave of ice, and it was approaching the ship. The big danger was that the wall of ice would collapse on top of the ship and block the exits, trapping the men below. The wall would approach the ship and press against the port side, causing the ship to list to the starboard. The men had rigged a canvas awning on the port side of the ship, and it was the only thing keeping the wave of ice from crashing down on the Fram's deck. Serious preparations were made to abandon the ship. Provisions and gear, as well as the dogs, were all moved to the ice. Each man had his personal bag ready to take to the ice if necessary. The men could only watch in negative 20 degrees Celsius or negative 4 Fahrenheit, cold as the Fram, already covered in ice and snow, was threatened by the wall of ice. If the ship went down, they were 250 miles from land, or 400 kilometers, and would have to survive on the ice as it drifted west. And so the men waited. The wall of ice hovered over the ship, but did not collapse. At night, due to the intense cold, the men slept on board, fully clothed and ready to abandon the ship at a moment's notice. And then, the ice would let go. Fromm was pushed up several feet and broke away from the wall of ice. The ship was clear of the danger. Nansen would write, quote, We are like tiny dwarves in the struggle with titans. End quote. It is a reminder that Fromm was not going to last forever in the ice, no matter how ingenious the design was. With that crisis averted, the ship would reach a milestone on January 8th. It was here that the expedition reached 83 degrees, 34 minutes north, setting a record for farthest north, besting Adolphus Greeley. No matter what happened going forward, Nansen at least had that record in the bag. Nansen targeted departing for the pole in late February. Even to the last moment, he was tweaking things, which drove the men nuts. And the closer they came to departing, the more manic Nansen became. He was combative and fussy, insisting his ideas were the best, 
often ignoring the suggestions of others. Unbearable was a common word used to describe him. Johansson would write, quote, My friends on board predict it will be a miserable tour with him. End quote. The truth is that Nansen was overwhelmed, which is understandable, but his inability to compartmentalize his feelings and anxiety made him unpleasant to be around. Now, despite it all, the work continued. The sledges had to be reconfigured. They would be shod in German steel, with false maple runners attached over them. The wooden runners would be removed when the temperatures got warmer and the snow changed. On February 14th, Nansen and Johansen slept out on the ice to test things out. The temperature would fall to negative 43 degrees Celsius, or negative 45 Fahrenheit. They found the two sleeping bags were not warm enough. Thus, more insulation was added, and they were combined into a single bag that the men would share. The dogs were also readied for the journey by being fed as much food as they wanted. This included a steady diet of polar bear blubber. By the way, the ship had, during its time on the ice, run into bears on several occasions. These moments could turn deadly as dogs would die in these encounters. Nansen prepared by reading everything he could find about Franz Joseph Land, which would be his target on the return journey. There was, however, not much information about the islands, which had not even been discovered until 1873. One positive was that it was known to be home to bears and seals, so food would not be an issue once they returned to the area. Nansen and Johansen would set out on February 26th. The day before, there had been a farewell dinner and photographs were taken on the ice. The two men would take 28 dogs and four sledges. That's seven dogs per sledge. Nansen's dog, Kavaik, would lead one of the teams. Nansen would take the point, the dogs following. A group of men on skis from the ship would travel with them for a while. The team did great on even flat surfaces, but it quickly became obvious that the sledges were inadequate for the task at hand. They came to a halt when presented with obstacles, and they were hard to get going once they had stopped. One sledge would break when it tried to go over a small ridge, called a hummock. Another was damaged. Nansen would have to turn around and return to Fram. The problem was the weight. The sledges were overloaded. Thus, Nansen elected to take two more sledges, reducing the weight of the load from 280 to 200 kilos, or from 615 to 440 pounds. The dogs would work in teams of five or six. Also, the sledges were reinforced by having boards fitted to the underside. Nansen would set out a second time two days later. The results were not good. The sledges were still too heavy, so 150 pounds of pemmican was abandoned. The other issue was the dogs worked better in larger teams. In the end, there were too many sledges and too much weight. By March 3rd, they had only made 8 miles, or 13 kilometers. Nansen elected to return to Fram and regroup. It would have been an embarrassing moment for Nansen, seeing his carefully laid plans blowing up in his face. But let's not forget, the man wasn't an idiot. And while he was stubborn and opinionated, he knew when he had to adapt and thus he would start again. The first thing he did was to go with just three sledges. These were reinforced to withstand the rougher landscape. And the weight of everything was carefully calculated, and some things were cut from the provision list. As a note, Nansen had been, oddly, really cavalier with regards to weighing things. He had sort of eyeballed the loads of the sledges before, but now the men meticulously weighed each item. In the end, the average load per dog was lowered from 42 to 27 kilos, or from 93 to 60 pounds. The provision list included 100 days of supplies for the two men, 80 days of food for the dogs, plus the kayaks and remaining gear. Nansen even adjusted the clothing for the journey, as the wolfskin outfits he had planned on using got stiff and froze when a man sweated. He would go back to wool. A third attempt to set off occurred on May 14, 1895. The day was sunny and the sledges were now pulled by teams of 9 or 10 dogs. The ship was at 84 degrees, 4 minutes north. 
The Fromm would fire off its cannon again, and the dogs were off, this time for good. Several of the crew would travel along with Nansen that day, but the next morning everyone shook hands and Nansen and Johansen were alone. The two men had before them a journey of 660 kilometers, or 410 miles, to the North Pole. Nansen calculated they needed to cover 13 kilometers a day, or 8 miles. That's roughly a 50-day journey. And we can't forget, they have to come back. And that, my friends, is where we will leave things for today. Nansen was off on what he hoped to be an epic run for the North Pole. We will follow him and Johansen in our next episode. And we won't forget about the Fram. The ship, now under the command of Otto Svedrup, was still in the clutches of the Arctic ice pack. We will keep tabs on them as well. So that is it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please come back next time, and we will continue the story of Fridjof Nansen and the Fram Expedition. Thank you for listening. Please take care. The Explorers podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other great podcasts, including the Daily Meditation Podcast and Everything Everywhere Daily.